This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable, Friday, October the 14th, 5pm in the City of London. Wow, what a week it has been, uh, and we are certainly going out with a bang. Uh, We've had a Liz Truss press conference today, it lasted eight minutes. Uh, I thought she did well, I joke. Uh, We'll come (laughs) on and talk more about uh, what has been the political story today throughout the week and what it all means to markets in just a moment. Alex, um, it's been quite the day, it's been quite the week. Yeah. And then here in the U.S., you know, we had that insane monster rally yesterday that just confused pretty much everybody. It looked like we were going to build on that today. We get a lot of bank earnings, mixed bag, but then you get this UMICH number, and that seemed to really jolt markets again. You had that one-year inflation expectation rising to over 5%. It hasn't risen since March. It's at the level it's been back in July. So now we're having more retrenched inflation expectations, and markets tank like a stone. Yeah. We're now down by 2.2% uh, on the uh, the Nasdaq. It's down on the week now by 2.2%. The uh, the S&P is down by nine-tenths of 1% on the week. Just to wrap up what's happened here in the UK, the FTSE uh, finishing fairly flat today, 68.58, uh, up by one-tenth of 1%. But the surprising story late in the afternoon has been a sharp move higher, particularly in long-end yields for the gilt market which may make life interesting on Monday morning, because remember the Bank of England's policy uh, of supporting the market, which has run through the last 13 days, in theory ends today. But as I say, let's wait and see what happens on Monday morning. I'm not really prepared at this (laughs) stage to call this one. I'm not anticipating a particularly relaxing start to next week. Um, Let's get some headlines. Then we're going to dig into all of this. Charlie Pellet, over to you. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. A day of fast-moving developments in the United Kingdom. Kwasi Kwarteng thrown out as Chancellor of the Exchequer after just 38 days, but he spent more than a decade promoting his small-state low-tax vision for the UK that proved his downfall and which may still cost prime Minister Liz trusts her job as well. Neighbors in southwest London and allies in book writing before rising through government to the two most powerful positions in politics. Trust today jettisoned Quarteng in a desperate bid to save her premiership. He has been replaced by former Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. Russian President Vladimir Putin says he has no regrets about his struggling invasion of Ukraine and left open the possibility of renewed massive bombardment of cities there, but no was his quick response when asked by a reporter whether he had any regrets about the war. He also told journalists in the Kazakh capital of Astana, quote, we're acting in a correct and timely way. Dock workers at the port of Liverpool are planning two more weeks of strikes after a pay dispute escalated into a confrontation with employer Peel Ports over job losses. The Unite Union says almost 600 dockers plan to walk out from October 24th to November 7th following an ongoing strike that ends Monday and an initial two-week action from September 19th. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Charlie, we'll be back in around 30 minutes' time to update us. So let's kind of, let's talk about the day. Um, 
First thing this morning, we learn that Kwasi Kwarteng, the then Chancellor, was hot-footing it back from the IMF meeting in Washington, D.C. He caught the last flight, British Airways A380 flight, uh, out of D.C. He landed around 10.30 this morning. Expectations grew that he was to be fired, ousted, uh, and the markets responded positively. Uh, We then get news that Jeremy Hunt is going to be the new Chancellor. Jeremy Hunt uh, of Hindhead... Um, I have to say, he is my local MP, so I just need to put that one out there. Um, and and that kind of the, that doesn't generate that bigger market response. Then we get a Liz Truss press conference, which lasted all of eight minutes. I don't know if you can call it a presser at that point, to be honest. Let's be real. She answered three questions. Yeah. They were all the same question. Yeah, same answer. But too. she answered three questions. Same answer. Totally unconvincing. And to be honest. Her looking for the reporters during that that Q and A section of that eight minutes painful was very I, the whole thing was painful but that was particularly painful. Let's let's just take a little listen to what Liz Truss had to say. We need to act now to reassure the markets of our fiscal discipline. I have therefore decided to keep the increase in corporation tax that was planned by the previous government. This will raise £18 billion per year. It will act as a down payment on our full medium-term fiscal plan, which will be accompanied by a forecast from the independent OBR. We will do whatever is necessary to ensure debt is falling as a share of the economy in the medium term. We will control the size of the state to ensure that taxpayers' money is always well spent. Our public sector will become more efficient to deliver world-class services for the British people. And spending will grow less rapidly than previously planned. I met the former Chancellor earlier today. I was incredibly sorry to lose him. He is a great friend and he shares my vision to set this country on the path to growth. Today, I have asked Jeremy Hunt to become the new Chancellor. He's one of the most experienced and widely respected government ministers and parliamentarians. And he shares my convictions and ambitions for our country. He will deliver the medium-term fiscal plan at the end of this month. The Prime Minister, speaking at Downing Street a little earlier on today. I'm honestly sad just listening to that. Like, I just, like, my whole energy just goes, oh. It's so depressing. She, she wasn't exactly dynamic. Jeez. Let's put it that way. Uh, Joe Mays joins us to cover the political angle. David Goodman joins us to cover the economic angle. John Authors covers just about everything. So we're, we'll kind of slot him in to get his take on what is happening here and get an opinion on where this leaves us all. Joe, I'm going to start with you on the politics. Marks out of 10 for Theresa May in that eight-minute press conference. Uh, Theresa May guy. We were talking about Liz Truss. Sorry, Theresa May. Liz Truss. Liz Truss. <laughs> I was going to come on and ask you a May question in just a moment. So my, my mind was already uh-huh, there. Liz uh-huh. Truss. Yeah, it, it was certainly far from what the markets needed in terms of how brief it was, how she didn't take 
barely any questions. And but crucially, that we can get much detail on changes to the economic package is what markets really want to hear. All we had was that corporation tax increase, keeping that, and then saying that spending would perhaps not grow as rapidly as previously planned. But that's kind of thing grew for the markets in terms of that fiscal credibility that they wanted to see. And we've seen yields go up in, in the last couple of hours, I think, which is in response to that. So, yeah, it really just didn't do the job. Um, okay, David, economically wise, economically wise, whatever. Uh, so we have the tax rate on companies are going to go up. The freeze will not go as planned. Um, is that enough? What's left? How much money do they have to fill in the gap? Um, well, quite a lot is the answer. I mean, it helps a bit, obviously, but they still need to find something like, I think it's £24 billion of cuts is what Bloomberg Economics are saying. That's obviously a lot. And as Joe said, there was really no information about where they're going to find that from. And there's been no information on that at all since we had the fiscal plan, which is obviously the problem that kicks all this off. And yeah, and the market reaction is kind of, I think, a bit of a foretaste of what might be yeah. to come on Monday. Like it was okay, a real well, brutal sell off. Let's talk about Monday in just a moment. Let's focus on, on today. Um, Joe, let's talk a little bit about Jeremy Hunt as, as the new chancellor. Why him? What, what does he bring to the table? Well, I think two things. One is that he's seen as a safe pair of hands in that he's an experienced figure in the party, has held many cabinet positions in the past. So he seems like a safe bet in that sense. But secondly, he's seen as someone who has support across the party. And that's something Liz Truss has struggled with. She has big factions that are opposed to her, larger people who supported Rishi Sunak in the leisure campaign. And Hans kind of ticks the boxes for them as someone who is more credible, kind of more moderate. So she, she, she brings in support from those people. So I think that's why uh, Hunt, in her eyes, is a good choice. Mm-hmm. Well, just a, re- a headline here, Crossing. So apparently a person familiar um, with the matter um, says that Trust expects Hunt to agree no more U-turns on UK tax package. No more U-turns on UK tax package. Uh, I just don't understand how this is going to actually work. Joe, um, how, long in, how long will Liz Truss have this job? Well, MPs have been texting us today saying you know, it could be a matter of days at this point. And so far as things could move very quickly, they could all coalesce around some kind of unifying candidate. The 1922 committee would change the rules. There would be a movement against her and she would be replaced. That could happen quite fast. And the mood amongst MPs is terrible at the moment. So, yes, this could be, this could be a matter of days right now. Um, just to come back, uh, David, let's just to come, to come back to Liz Truss expects Jeremy Hunt to agree no more U-turns on the UK tax package. So where does that leave us from an economic point of view? Well, I, I suppose there's not that many places they can use it anymore. They've scrapped the 45p thing. The NI. They've scrapped the, the NI. It's already been voted. I mean, it'd be very difficult. Given that was all went through this yeah. week, that'd be very difficult to row back on. I guess there's the income tax cut. Again, that would be that feels tricky to go back on now. I mean, it there isn't a lot left to, to, to get rid of from the budget, from the mini budget, to be honest. So it has to be on the spending side, probably the spending cuts. And yep. trying to find those is going to be really hard based on. I mean, departmental budgets are going to be pretty stretched anyway. So trying to find more stuff to cut from that is going to be almost impossible. Well, and then t- can you cut spending when you're dealing with a cost of living in, in, in crisis? Like, can you actually do that? Exactly. Especially when you've said that you're going to go for growth, 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 growth was all this trust has talked about since she came into power. Yeah. And so to suddenly impose kind of austerity, it probably now won't have to be quite as brutal as what Osborne brought in. But it's it's certainly 
of that kind of ilk that we're going to have to see. And that just doesn't really sit with a government who is apparently still going all out for growth. She said that again today. She, amazingly, she did. Um, multiple, John, multiple times. Let's, <laughs> let's bring you in and get your kind of bigger picture yeah. thoughts on what is happening here. What is the point <laughs> of the trust oh. government? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a good question. Um, under the constitution, the party still has a five-year man still has two years left of the mandate that was one. Yeah, what, what, what's the, what's the objective here? It's not growth anymore. I actually talked about growth today, but clearly it isn't going to be. This was meant to be a big supply-side reform revolution that we were going to see. It was going to be a low-tax supply-side reform revolution that they've yeah. been plotting for ages. That's now gone. Yeah. That's now toxic. So what's the point of this government? Very, very limited, other than under the rules as they currently exist. It's pretty much impossible to force uh, a general election unless quite a substantial number of Conservative MPs decide they, they want to do that. Um, so, but, but in terms of what can this achieve, what credibility, what ability to be believed by markets, by other countries do they have, I, it's... It's hard to imagine any any government with less credibility than this. I do agree, incidentally, with I, I, I think Jeremy Hunt is um, you know, a wise choice. He's about as heavyweight a candidate as she could bear to uh, uh, give to that job, given that she wasn't going to give it back to Rishi Sunak, which is what markets would have really liked. Yeah. Huh. Um, uh, so, but I suspect if there isn't much point in it for the next couple of years. It may well be that uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt, as the sort of man in the grey suit, the uh, the adult in the room, becomes de facto the most powerful powerful person in the cabinet. He mm-hmm. cannot, as far as I can see. I mean, Liz Truss herself once did a course in mathematical logic and did it very well, I gather, at Oxford, mm-hmm. and I cannot understand how she doesn't get that these sums fundamentally don't add up, that something has to give. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think you might get some kind of a, I suspect there may be a tax hike of some other tax nobody's mentioned yet hmm. to come, and you can say that's not a U-turn. I okay, think fair that enough. might actually happen. Raising taxes then, it feels like a, de- fact, a derivative U-turn, maybe we can look at it like that. So, just a quick check on the market. Guy alluded to this, but I mean, <laughs> you can't make this up. You got the 10-year now up 12 basis points, but the 30-year up 22, the 50-year up 27. You got the two-year up by 13. I mean, all across the curve, you see underperformance. I mean, this is not what you want to see the day when the pension support from the e- from the BOE ends going in to Monday. David Goodman. No. We'll, no. We'll, we'll no. get back to you, John. David Goodman, what happens Monday morning? Well, I think it could be another really kind of messy start to the week. Um, obviously, markets are going to have to get used to life without the BOE in there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we. This, I think what's really worrying about this afternoon, obviously, the levels we can talk about are, are one thing, but just the speed of the move is what's mm-hmm. going to be a concern. Like, we ba- we were down at 4.2% on the 30-year earlier, earlier today. Now it's kind of got up to 4.8-ish. I mean, that's a 60 basis point in, intraday swing, and that's yeah. huge. And that's kind of speed and, velo- and velocity that was the kind of thing that caused all these problems in the first place. So if we're back to that dynamic in the gilt market, then how long can the BOE stay out, out of it, I suppose? I mean, if it is posing these kind of systemic risks, as they said it was, 
maybe they're not going to bring in exactly the same buy-in plan because they've been so firm about that, but they may have something else, I suppose, to be another facility. I mean, one thing to note is that we've got, we're not done with this week yet. Um, the IMF is still going on. We've got speeches from Bailey and other people coming up over the weekend. That might be something that, there may be something to watch for there, but I mean, you, Joe, you, you think yeah. it won't last long without the BOE. Joe, if we get more chaos in markets next week, is that going to accelerate the potential for Liz Truss's ousting? I think it will. I mean, that's what's happened so far, right? Every time the markets have, have wobbled, the, the, the government's conceded in, in, in some kind of way, and then they've wobbled a bit more, and now she's firing the Chancellor, and she's turning on some of the baggage. If the markets go even further, it's just a logical next step. Mm-hmm. The Tories realise they have to stop this somehow, and it looks like it could be just getting rid of her. That will be the thing that does it. Which then makes me feel, John Authors, that you just have the market is basically then going to be dictating UK policy. Yes. Um, which is <laughs> why some of us didn't think there was much point leaving the EU, because at least the EU had some degree of accountability. And when you're in a modern, globalized financial world, you are subject to the international markets. It's not like the international markets are being particularly capricious in this case. They're yep. just saying, if you seriously want to borrow that amount of money, we're going to charge you a much higher rate of interest for it than you can afford, um, which is what a, a bank manager would normally do. And in this case, it's the international markets. But yes, not, not for the first time. Uh, a British government has found that the, the international markets just won't let it do what it wants to do. Uh, and in previous cases, that's worked out well. You know, the, the, uh, the 76 crisis when we needed an IMF loan led to you know, the big changes that ultimately became Thatcherism and... Black Wednesday in '92 led to, you know, the prosperity in the Blair years with a with a cheaper pound. So, you know, it, it's not as though the market is necessarily a malign influence. Yep. It's just uh, it's it, it may be the only uh, and at this point very effective check on the power of the prime minister. Um, Joe, just before we let you go, if trust was to be replaced, would it be by Sunak? It feels like that's probably the most likely outcome at this point. Or Penny Mordaunt is another name spoken about. But I think Sunak would carry the kind of the, uh, the economic credentials required at this point to, to yep. steady the ship. OK, I'm going to let Joe and David go. They, they are incredibly busy. They've got lots of things going on. Uh, David's sitting here looking at his phone. I, I kind of get a sense that, <laughs> that he's kind of itching uh, to, to get back st- stuck back into the action. So thank you both very much indeed, uh, David Goodman and Joe Mays. We're going to stick with uh, John Authors uh, to continue this discussion. John, what are the ripple effects? What are the implications of what has happened here in the UK over the last few days for global financial markets? Well, the critical problem we have is that um, what the pension funds were involved in was what, during the the last great crisis in 2008, we came to call shadow banking. They were finding ways to lever up to take more risk using derivatives, which is exactly what happened in 2008. And that was, in many ways, a policy that was directly encouraged by the QE policy, the policy of keeping rates very low for a very long time. In many ways, what the central banks wanted people to do was take more risk. They just wanted to be able to see what they were doing and didn't want them to do it via leverage. Mm-hmm. So um, the the people I've been talking to about the pension funds in the UK, uh, quite a number, you know, the, these, are, these are experts 
in UK pensions, I know from 20 years back, they're not exactly outspoken people and they really are apoplectic about how bad this was, that this really was very, uh, very irresponsible behaviour by a lot of, by a lot of funds. Well, uh, and it got revealed by not just the rise in the, 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 the rates, but the swiftness of that rise. And, that, and obviously, you know, this now becomes a great cautionary tale for everywhere right. else in the developed world, which probably well, John, does have similar time bonds. Yes. To that point, mm. it can go either two ways, I guess. This was the canary in the coal mine. There's going to be other blowups as the leverage is tried is unwound yeah. from central banks. Or now we know how not to do things and now we do it differently. What do you think? It's possible. It's possible that this is their Stearns, again, using the 2008 analogy. Uh, and maybe it's possible still to fix the situation, to take the measures that are necessary um, before we get a broader broader collapse. I, I, I mean, the thing that worries me most um, is that the logic of the situation is to pivot uh, i.e. to ease off the rate rises because that eases the pressure on these dodgy derivative structures. And we learned from CPI here in the States yesterday that this isn't a good time at all to be pivoting from the point of view of macroeconomic policy. Um, it's possible that the extent of the shadow banking has left all of us with no choice but to put up with more inflation and and um yeah and ultimately so do, lower rates do we do we also need to put up with more inflation or do we just need to slow down the rate at which we expect it to come back down to target i the the, the level oh. of front loading we're seeing from central banks at the moment is extraordinary yes i agree with that they they, they felt they had to change the narrative and if you look at some of the expectations numbers uh, consumer expectations, they did see, do seem to have succeeded to an extent in that. Consumer inflation expectations have come down quite noticeably. Um, yes, certainly one of the possibilities, which I think is very likely um, and may become not a matter of choice, is that they um, uh, accept that their target is now three, not two, or at least for a period it's three, not two percent. That, that I can easily imagine this one of the simplest and least embarrassing ways of getting through the next few years. Um, and again, the, the, it's not as though there are good options at this point. We shouldn't have been in this position in the first place, but uh, I, 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 fear of, I fear the likelihood is that we end up tolerating more inflation for longer mm-hmm. than we ought to need to, than, than you, we want to. What do you think... When do you think that central bankers are going to start saying stuff like that? When are they going to realize that? They may be talking about it offline, but online, they're committing to that 2% hard. What, what do you think it's going to take for them to start reconsidering it? That's, uh, I, I'm sure they are already reconsidering it. They're just not saying it in public. What? Um, That's crazy. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, the, the only, the very big, well, crazy. The, think how people reacted when... Um, Think how people reacted to Andrew Bailey's ultimatum three days ago, which now actually begins to look quite clever. It may have actually forced Liz Trust to fire quasi quartet, arguably. But that's the only example I can think of in recent year, in the recent days or months when 
that's really come out into the open. Uh, in private, I'm so sure you they're talking about whether they need to to to, uh, to uh, turn turn direction to whether they need to pivot very much indeed. But it won't be for macroeconomic reasons. It won't be because unemployment's going up. It'll be because um, they're scared that they're going to create another long-term capital management or, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not predicting this, but obviously if, if what has happened to gilts were, had happened to treasuries, that would be very serious, to put it mildly. That that would leave nobody with any choice but to uh, completely change uh, change their policy because effectively, you know, the bank manager would have said, no, you can't do this. John, what's the alloc- uh, what's the asset allocation model in that kind of a scenario? <laughs> uh, I actually perversely think that having at least some bonds makes some sense at this point because mm-hmm. the yields are getting reasonable and quite a number of the, uh, uh, for, for longer terms, and f- quite a number of the scenarios that, the, that, that seem more likely at the moment do suggest that uh, by 10 years' time, rates are going to, come back down quite a lot lower because we're going to give up on the fight against inflation. Not that bonds are particularly wonderful, but that's that's the best thing. The other thing is completely unimaginative, but real assets. Mm-hmm. And uh, in inflationary times, uh, you know, the 70s was a terrible time for bonds and stocks and a seriously good one for gold and oil. So um, that would, that also makes some sense generally as ever in asset allocation, be careful out there and be cautious. And uh, uh, you know, as we saw yesterday, don't. It, it's a risky decision to get out of the stock market, just as it's a risky, risky decision to get to uh, to invest in it. So, um, within normal bounds, you want to have less in stocks than usual. But, but uh, um, getting out altogether is probably a bad idea as well. Well, it's almost always a bad idea. John, look, we really appreciate it. It has been quite a week, and I know that Friday can be a rest day. So we appreciate uh, the time. Uh, like I always say, definitely read John Author's uh, pieces. They hit your email inbox around 12, 1 o'clock in the morning uh, U.S. time, and they really help set you up uh, for what you're looking for that day. John Author is joining us from Bloomberg Opinion. Um, okay, guys, so let's just update here. So we were talking earlier, you got the 30-year yield over in the U.K., you have 22 basis points in the U.S. Uh, we're still rolling over here. The S&P is down by 1.8%, 2.3 for the NASDAQ. You're seeing selling all across the bond market in the U.S. as well. Nowhere near what we're seeing uh, in the U.K., but a uh, 10-year yield is up by about uh, 7 basis points. Whew. Oh, and then their earnings. Did we mention that? I... Mention what? Earnings. Those hold that thing. That thing that's happening. And and we've got the banks today. The banks continue on Monday. It's a really big week for earnings next week as well. This could be. I, but with the, the macro, it's to... it's hard to key in, right? It's like they're going to struggle through. Okay, we get this macro headwinds. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, the, the crazy is the right word. Chaos is another word that I would use right now. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. I just gave a quick check on the market here in the U.S. Equities lower. Yields higher. Dollar higher. In fact, side note, dollar yen is now at the highest level that we haven't seen since 1990. Just putting that out there. Um, 
Lots of stuff to get through. Yes, bank earnings, we'll get to that in a second. The UMICH number surprised to the upside, not in a good way. Uh, One-year inflation expectations rose to 5.1%. You got a ton of Fed speak right around the same time. The one that stood out to me was uh, Fed's Mary Daly saying that we need to slow GDP growth substantially. That seemed pretty clear that the Fed is nowhere near to putting on any brakes uh, to their rate hike rises. All right, let's get Charlie Pellet now for some other headlines. And here's what's going on. Indeed, it is the day's top story. Liz Truss has scrapped her plan to freeze corporation tax next year in another dramatic U-turn hours after she fired her ally Kwasi Kwarteng and replaced him with Jeremy Hunt as UK Chancellor of the Exchequer. The humiliating reversal follows three weeks of market turmoil since September 23rd, when Quartang announced a massive program of unfunded tax cuts. Faced with no detail on how the government could make the sums add up, traders drove the pound to a record low against the dollar and forced the Bank of England into an emergency intervention to support the bond market. The BOE's emergency bond purchases came to an end today with the central bank hoovering up 19.25 billion pounds of securities in a little over two weeks to prevent turmoil in UK markets from spreading. Royal Mail says it will cut 10,000 jobs after projecting a full-year operating loss that it blamed partly on a series of crippling strikes. The UK Postal Service, whose parent company has been renamed International Distribution Services, says it expects adjusted operating losses of around £350 million following a £219 million shortfall in the first half through September. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here. Here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. Let's get to bank earnings. I worked really hard in trying to figure out which went with what bank. Now, Shanali Basic is here, and, and she's going to do a better job than me. But if I was to sum it up, Shanali, JP Morgan, really good. Jamie Dimon, clouds ahead. Wells Fargo, fine. Legal problems, not so good. City, miss unfic, miss on equity trading, not so great. Morgan Stanley, bad equities trading. Bad, bad, bad. Stock down almost 4%. You almost have it. You, you have it pretty good She's there. like, you almost did it. Yeah, almost. Did it. Almost was it the key strong. word there. <laughs> you set it up real strong. Yeah, it's interesting because for Morgan Stanley, remember, I think it's super important to put this into context because they are facing that pressure in the stock today. They were so much richer than the other peers. And what's happening is a reckoning moment on Wall Street where everyone's realizing that investment bank even in trading, is not that ballast that it has been for the last couple of years. Trading is also under pressure. The good news for Morgan Stanley is that even with pressure on the equities business, you you did see them come above J.P. Morgan. Last quarter, Mm. J.P. Morgan beat them in equities trading. The big question then will be Goldman next week, what they come in at. Because even in a down market, you're going to want to see market share kept high, uh, especially as no, it's no big secret that the buy side is under a lot of pressure. So the trading results will suffer from that. What are these banks going to look like in a recession? What clues did we get today? We got so many. And it's really interesting to see the banks come up with so much detail. You had Jamie Dimon saying if unemployment were to rise to 5 6%, you could see much more in terms of provisioning for loan losses. The numbers he threw out there were 5 to $6 billion, but he kind of shrugged it off like it was nothing. Uh, you know, uh, $6 billion for a bank that makes $32 billion a quarter in revenue perspective, I guess. And so what he, he sounded somewhat pessimistic. Like he but didn't you think or, think or not as bad as like the hurricanes are coming, Jamie Diamond? Well, I think this is the one 
operative statement he made. He said, my forecasts here are not different from last quarter to this quarter. Hmm. He's not giving probably, he's been so strict on not giving probabilities on what a hard landing, how, how what is the probability of a hard landing versus something more medium versus something that's tougher. He didn't give you probabilities on which of the three it would be. Hmm. He just told you what would happen in each of those scenarios. So he said that you could expect more provisions if things get worse from here. Uh, obviously, much worse would mean much more provisions. However, now we know. Now we know what that total impact would be. They may have to revise or relook at their 17% return on tangible common equity ratio. However, they said they think they could hit it. And the wording he used was that JP Morgan will do damn good <laughs> in a recession. Yep. So uh, what he's saying there is they have enough uh, of levers here to make it through. Net interest income, incredibly strong. Is that sustainable? Yes, um, not not to the degree that we're seeing. And he did. This is where Alex's point here on those worries come to mm-hmm. the surface, because there are reason a lot of that, you know, the lending really came from the credit card book. Something that was not really answered for me this morning is how much of that credit card spend is healthy, uh, mm-hmm. healthy lending that's happening here mm-hmm. and how much of it is gas and groceries being put on a credit card. Uh, we've seen it from regulators showing you, the CFPB have shown you that people are even buying gas and groceries on buy now, pay later. So what he did say is that by the middle of next year, all of that excess consumer save that you've been seeing, all of that excess consumer cash on the sidelines is going to come into pressure into next year. So to your point, Guy, it, when consumers are pressured in the middle of next year, are they going to be able to turn to their banks to get an extra dollar, and what mm-hmm. will that cost them? And, and he, he said something like that, didn't he? He was basically like, consumers are fine now, but they run out. Exactly. I mean, that was pretty, that to me was a bit stark uh, when he said that. The other thing he said was that he didn't see systemic risks that were boiling through the system, but he did see a lot of pressure in certain areas, particularly in credit what, mm. Jamie Jamie Dimon sounded like he was surprised about what was happening in the UK. I'm he surprised did. that he's surprised. He said that. He said he was surprised by specifically how much leverage were on pension fund balance sheets. Like to be honest, if Jamie Dimon doesn't know this kind of stuff, nobody does. Yeah, and you know, he's been UK didn't even know. You guys didn't even know. No, no, I appreciate that, but but this is like Jamie Dimon is is the head of the world's biggest bank. He I he he operates at a level. He has visibility at a level that that most of us will never achieve. And I'm sure he's being briefed regularly on what is going on. This was something that had been kind of it. People were aware of it. I don't think they were quite aware about how quickly it could become a problem. But if Jamie Dimon was surprised about how quickly it became a problem, I, I'm that makes me more nervous, not less. I would agree. And, you know, privately, the conversation I've been having with bankers as well is, is this the worst of it? Mm-hmm. Or if we're seeing more fluctuations uh, when it comes to either the guilt or different currencies, what other clients will come under pressure? And if I, you know, this is my quick survey, you know, take what you will of it. But it is what's happening in the UK. There's some concerns around the yen. There's concerns about just kind of leverage among asset managers in general, even beyond pension funds as it pertains to their exposure to very, very, very volatile assets that are not normally volatile. Mm-hmm. So to end on the... Whoa. 
that was funny. I she fell in my a little chair. bit. Um, <laughs> I saw it. Cool. Sorry, cool guys. Been um, week. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you this question. We don't have a ton of time. But you and I spoke to a lot of people, you much more than me today, a lot of big name investors over the last week. And everyone was like, no, alternative investing's great. Everything's fine. Distress credit, no problem. We're in there. Uh, yeah, we're not going to sell in the next 10 minutes, but we're good to go. Does that continue, you think? I'm excited because Blackstone reports earnings on Thursday, and they will be the first view into how their assets are holding up. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of dry powder. They're trying to buy things cheaply. You see them buying CLOs to other assets as well. But again, if they're taking markdown simultaneously, There are cracks in the surface. Yeah. I mean, they don't have to sell stuff like right away. There's no like fire sale issue there, but you wonder where the cracks start to show a little bit. Um, all right, I'm going to not fall off my chair and say goodbye to Shanali. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. Shanali Basic joining us there. Wonderful work today. Really great. And the whole week as well. All right, coming up, we're going to hear from the woman behind the UMish survey numbers, Joanne Shu. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listening to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York, Guy Johnson over in London. So, Guy, one of our favorite UMish days is the, well, our favorite day is UMish day because we get to talk to Joanne Chu, who's the woman behind the UMish uh, scenario and, and the survey. I cannot talk. It's done. It's over. It's definitely Friday. It's been a long week. Uh, okay, uh, the UMish one year inflation expectation. That was the thing. It rose to 5.1%. It was the first time it rose since March. Um, we had the data and we had Joanne Shu on the show and we sort of broke down how sticky is inflation uh, and why the rise in the number. What consumers are noticing is this, uh, this this uptick in gas prices that we saw over the last few weeks. Um, and they saw that the relief that they were seeing earlier in the summer just hasn't really been sustained with prices. Where does that leave us with consumer sentiment, consumer confidence? What's the overall picture, Joanne? With consumer sentiment, um, I would say it's pretty much stalled out for the last um, couple of readings. Um, it has lifted off about uh, 11 points, sorry, about 10 points above the all-time low that we saw earlier in the summer in June, Um, but it hasn't been a sustained increase. Uh, People are still feeling the bite of inflation. Um, Higher income people are now really starting to feel concerns about uh, their asset values, Um, and uh, the improvement that we saw before has been really tentative. So, Joanne, it is a bit confusing to figure out what's sticky and what's not, because the narrative was supposed to be, as gasoline prices came down, and I appreciate that they're rising a little bit, is that inflation expectations were to come down. Does that imply that we're looking at a more sticky scenario here? What I think has is going on for consumers is that um, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, even with that uh, decline in inflation expectations we saw um, a few weeks ago and last month, um, there was an enormous amount of uncertainty across the population about where inflation was going. Um, and so we're, I think we're in for a bumpy ride, just for not just for inflation, but for sentiment as well, because of all this uncertainty. Are inflation expectations still anchored, Joanne? Um, Long-run inflation expectations um, edged up to 2.9, and it's been at two. Besides last month, it's been between 2.9 and 3.1 um, since last July. So we're not really seeing any indication um, of moving, um, you know, of, of a major change from that situation. Um, what I can say is that consumers don't see any additional relief relative to how they were feeling a few months ago. What do you think is going to change this? Joanne, like if gasoline prices can stay around three, like what's going to be the thing that reverses this direction? 
I think it needs to be a sustained decrease in, in gas prices and prices mm-hmm. that consumers are seeing elsewhere. Um, consumers aren't just responding to gas prices. And in fact, um, it's the lowest income consumers that saw the biggest changes, biggest increases in sentiment. And those are the people that you would think gas prices would count the most for. So gas prices are part of, part of it, but it's not the entire story. Consumers are really considering um, where prices are going and, and all the things that they are spending. Um, so we do need to see something sustained and not just these little wiggles. If we're seeing wiggles in prices, it's just going to, um, it, it's not going to result in any sort of sustained improvement in consumer sentiment. Joanne, if the labor market rolls over, which isn't happening yet, what impact will that have? And are the numbers currently, to what extent are the numbers currently being supported by the relatively strong labor market? The current numbers are absolutely being supported by the strong labor market. Consumers um, continue to have fairly strong expectations, not just over the labor market generally, but over their own personal incomes. Um, By and large, consumers are expecting increases in incomes over the year ahead. Um, And if that changes, um, I expect people to pull back their spending quite strongly, even above and beyond the pullback that they've done in response to high prices. Joanne Shu, joining us on the University of Michigan consumer data that was revealed a little bit earlier on, um, just once again reinforcing, Alex, this idea that inflation relatively sticky at the moment. Mary Daly from the San Francisco Fed president, uh, the San Francisco Fed president, uh, she was talking about this. She basically, the, the latest C- CPI data was disappointing. What I thought was interesting was that she said it wasn't surprising, i.e. this is what we expected. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is exactly why I feel like everyone's still doubling down on that getting to 2% inflation. It's going to cause some pain. We're watching other stuff like financial conditions or watching overseas events, but we're still very much committed uh, to this path and and also pretty unanimous in that path. We talked to some ECB governors that didn't seem as on the same page, in the same book, but not on the same page. I feel like at this point, Fed officials really seem to be unanimous and in the same book and on the same page. It's, it, I have to say, yeah, the peripheral European central bankers are getting nervous about the hawkishness that's mm-hmm. coming from the mm-hmm. core. Definitely that story percolating. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York, Guy Johnson over in London. Uh, we were mentioning the, the market rolling over, NASDAQ still off by 2%, S&P off by 1.6%. we got to make sense of all of this. It has been a really intense 48 hours uh, for the equity market here in the U.S. So Jess Menton uh, joins us now in the studio with me, who covers equities for Bloomberg. Jess, I feel like before we can understand what's happening right now in the equity market, we need to go back to yesterday and understand what happened. I mean, looking at a chart... Of the S&P futures market, which is where you really saw it. I've never seen a chart like that before. It was wild yesterday, and especially just given that 5% price swing that we did see. So when I was speaking with my sources, they kept talking about a few different key areas of what was driving things yesterday. So we were talking about technicals, uh, the options market, and then short coverings. So especially when it comes to short covering, I was also looking at Goldman Sachs has a basket of their 50 top most shorted stocks. And that had been actually outperforming the S&P 500 at various points this week leading up to Thursday. And that was a concern when I spoke with certain traders that got burned ahead of the September 13th CPI report for the August data. They had been on the wrong side of that 
trade. So they started trying to reposition and basically trying to cover themselves ahead of that. So that was something part of it. And then again, this morning, that basket was outperforming the S&P 500, even before the S&P 500 turned lower after that University of Michigan data on the longer term inflation outlook. So that was a key thing. And then also just looking at option puts, a wave of put options were bought to basically protect against such a route that investors were fearful of. And then technicals came into the picture. I know that a lot of different technicians were looking at the 3505 level, which would have been like the 50% retracement level around the S&P 500 from the COVID lows. So there was a lot there, but I feel like short covering was a really big story, especially now that we're seeing sort of the unwinding of that happening today. Can I just come back to the options side of things? I was talking to the options guy the other day. He was basically, we are in a position now where fundamentals have virtually got nothing to do with this market. This market is being pushed around by the options market. It is basically the tail wagging the dog. How much truth is there to that? It seems like there is a lot of truth to that, especially when I'm speaking with my sources, because a lot of them, even at various times where we've seen certain rallies this year, when you're looking at what's happening with the option market, a lot of that has been attributed to that because investors are basically trying to hedge against what they think is another further decline in the broader market. Though we are in a seasonally bullish time of the year, I was actually speaking with Bloomberg Intelligence and their analysts over there, like Michael Casper and Jillian Wolf and obviously Gina Martin-Adams, and they had just put out their forecast as far as their base case scenario over the next 12 months for the S&P 500, and also their bullish case and most bearish case. And even in their um, base case scenario, they have the S&P 500 around 42.25, still well Mm. below the January highs. And even in the most rosiest scenario, 12 months out from now, they have 46.43, which is still below those January highs. But they're thinking if there's a more drastic downturn in earnings and in a more severe U.S. recession on the way, the S&P 500 could fall as low as 31.29, which is still well below where we are right now. So you you bring up the earnings situation, and, and I'm wondering if we can trust the price action around earnings based on the situation you just laid out. That's a great question, because if we think back to what happened in July, that was started, like a million and a half right, years ago. Right, which seems like that. such a long time ago week. now. That's when yeah. we saw that bounce off of, obviously, those June lows. And things were coming in better than expected because everyone was expecting there was going to be this massive reset, especially with what's happening with corporate margins. But then expectations were lowered so much that earnings came in better than expected. Mm. So we did see that bounce, but then that was short-lived. And so that was something that I was talking to Michael Casper about over at Bloomberg Intelligence, if if we potentially could see a similar type of scenario. And he said it is possible just because for the third quarter, just a couple months ago, those expectations for earnings growth were around 10%. Now it's below 3%. So we could see a situation where companies start beating, but again, it comes to the outlook. And he was saying, really, it doesn't matter because it's backward looking when we're looking at the third quarter. It matters about guidance and outlook. And so if companies cannot deliver on that, any sort of beats we might see could be short lived. Okay, let's talk about that then. Um, If we get rallies, even if they're driven off earnings, even if they're driven off fundamentals, are we still in a situation where these are bear market rallies? I think it was, was it B of A that described the bear hug? The rally, the bear yes. hug. Yeah, it was B of A. Michael yeah. Harnett. Mm-hmm. They, did, they did that this morning. And so the uh, average drawdown of bear markets, if you look at data from Sam Stovall over at CFRA, it's typically around 28% going back to World War II. But then 
if you look at bear markets associated with recessions, that average drawdown is 35%. And yesterday during the low, we were the uh, intraday low, it was basically a drawdown around 27%. Mm-hmm. So still, we're getting close to that maybe average drawdown without a recession. But during the dot-com bubble, that decline was well above beyond 30%. And even in the global financial crisis, the biggest drawdown from the highs of 07 to the bottom in March of 2009, mm-hmm. that was around 57%. Mm-hmm. So clearly, you could see in those kinds of longer churning bear markets, there was much more further room to go on that. So to that point, our invest or tra- whoever, are they looking at shorting <laughs> the... <laughs> are they looking at selling long positions, shorting the S&P, or buying puts? And I, and I did... When I say they, I don't actually know who I'm talking about. I think I'm talking about everybody, whether you're retail, whether you're institutional, whether you're hedge fund. Like, what is the most popular strategy? Well, it's interesting because just earlier this week, Bank of America had separate client flows that were directly related to their bank flows. And last week, they still had their um, investors were basically positioning as if there was a bottom. And that was looking across retail, looking across hedge funds and institutional. And institutional was among the biggest ones that had jumped in last week. And obviously that data, this this the data for this week will come out maybe around Tuesday of next week. So that'll be interesting to see. But I mean, that's across a broad spectrum. So not even just when we're talking about hedge funds. And so it seems like no matter if you are a shorter term investor, longer term investor, or if you're on the institutional side, it still is a very kind of a head scratching time for a lot of people right now. Hey, Jess, thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, It's been a long week for a lot of people. We appreciate you (laughs) joining us. Thank you so much. Wonderful insight, as always, Jess Menton, uh, who joins us covering Bloomberg Equities. Okay, drop the mic. We're out. That was a week. Let's hope next Uh, week is a little bit cleaner. (laughs) uh, Yeah, there's a lot of earnings coming up next week. A lot of Fed speak. Then the Fed goes into a quiet period. I almost can't wait for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wait to see what Monday morning looks like. Are we going to continue to see the gilt market volatility? That may set us up for a a, a bumpy week. So enjoy the weekend, everybody. Relax, take it easy, get some rest. I don't think we're done yet with this volatility. From Alex and from me, this is Bloomberg.